0: Hey folks, and welcome to another short. I know that last Monday's show was a little unorthodox, and there will probably be a few more like it, as I work through all of the ideas that will become the backbone of the Vietnam series. But today, it's all straightforward, and more than that, I think this is one of the better things I've turned out for at least the last six months. My first Patreon-exclusive news analysis show is coming out either in the middle of next week or right at the start of the one after. That show will probably be a quick roundup of everything that's going on that's really important versus the noise and what it all means for the future of our democracy. I haven't written it yet, but I can't imagine the prognosis is good. And if that sounds cool to you, head on over to patreon.com slash safer democracy and check things out. Other than that, I'm back on Twitter now, where I've always been, at John M. Coombs. I decided when I came back for another year of this show that I had to stop screwing around and pretending that making good content was the most important part of a podcast so I'm doubling down on social media. If that sounds dumb to you, and believe that it does to me, then share the show for me, and I'll get off Twitter and back onto writing the next show. All right, that's it. This week it's Korea, T.R. Farenbach, and American legions. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder, why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. (laughs) will put you in the driver's seat the revolution will not be televised will not be televised will not be televised will not be televised the revolution will be no rerun brothers the revolution will be live so i've talked more than a few times about this question of the why Why is it that we did the things we did, especially in terms of the amoral or immoral decision-making that characterizes the events of my longer shows? And in answering that question, I've been reductive and even flip. That's not to say that I don't think I've been right. I pretty much never think that I'm wrong. But if I'm willing to give a century's worth of Iranian and Guatemalan history a hearing over eight hours each, then I suppose it follows that it ought to give the decision-makers and the political scientists and the writers on the American side some opportunity to air their perspective on things, even if it's only so that I can argue with them. In that interest, the guy I want to talk about in this show is T.R. Fehrenbach. Fehrenbach fought as an enlisted man in the army during World War II, and then worked his way all the way up to the rank of major in the field during the Korean War. Afterwards, he got to be a writer of books and of newspapers, And he only quit that job a bare few months before his death in 2013, at the age of 88. Fehrenbach wrote what I've seen referred to as the classic history of the Korean conflict, a book called This Kind of War, which I read more or less recently and whose contents I want to talk about. The reason I like the idea of using Fehrenbach for what might be a first episode in a kind of mini-series about this question of the why is that he addresses the Korean War, the Cold War, and conflict in general with a moral system that I totally disagree with, but which is internally consistent and within itself rigorously ethical. Let me break that down. For example, Nixon and Kissinger developed a foreign policy in which they explicitly acknowledged that nationalist movements that took on a socialist or even communist flavor probably were not controlled by the Soviet Union, and that they weren't worth opposing, let alone overthrowing. So in the first part of that, they were factually correct. Like we talked about in Guatemala, Arbenz was the leader of a nationalist movement, and even if he had socialists and communists helping him to run the government, neither he nor they were interested in joining up with the Soviets or opposing the U.S. But the second part of the Nixon and Kissinger policy, the moral, actionable part about not intervening in those countries, not so good. Because when that policy was put to the test, like when Salvador Allende, a moderate socialist, was elected president of Chile, Nixon and Kissinger used the CIA to overthrow him, contravening their own policy. So while I agree with surprising amount of Nixon and Kissinger's stated foreign policy, they didn't follow it, and that's what I'm not on board with. I like Fehrenbach because even though I think his worldview is cracked, he sticks to his guns. So, I have all sorts of thoughts about the Korean War that are only half-formed, because I haven't done enough reading about it, but I think I could at least say that I think the picture is less clear than, as always, the official story we'd get in public school if public schools ever even got to the Korean War. I think in the first place that we can't judge the original North Korean communists by the regime that, in perpetual stalemate with South Korea and the West, has resulted more than a half-century after the end of the war. I think it in the same way that I'm not sure there's much you can usefully say about Ho Chi Minh by looking at modern Vietnam. And further, I know with the benefit of hindsight that the Soviet Union and even Mao's China had much less to do with the original North Korean invasion than Farenbach and pretty much everybody else thought at the time. Their impression was that all communisms, big or small, were being controlled from Moscow. And this doesn't follow the flow of the argument, but I just now realized that seeing as I only recently read a book on the war. I might want to give you a bare outline so you can follow when I refer to the conflict itself. So, Korea at the end of the Second World War ended up divided at the 38th parallel between the Soviet Union and the United States, because it had previously been occupied by Japan, with each side having its own native government within those great powers' spheres of influence. When the North Koreans crossed the parallel in an attempt to conquer the South and unify the country, the U.S. was nearly totally unprepared. The majority of our troops in the region were in Japan, occupying that country under MacArthur's command. We shipped them over as fast as we could, but they were out of shape, their equipment was bad, and they were undertrained. So the North Koreans pushed us and our South Korean allies almost all the way into the sea. An incredibly audacious landing planned by MacArthur at Incheon, along with a steadily growing and improving American contingent in the pocket that they'd been pushed back to in the South, turned the tide of the war and the U.S. and U.N. forces then hammered the North Koreans back almost all the way to the Yalu River on the border with China, at the very north of the country. Unfortunately, MacArthur and his subcommanders had been ignoring credible intelligence about huge numbers of Chinese troops moving into the mountains, through which our forces were pursuing the North Koreans. Those Chinese counterattacked, and MacArthur, with his forces spread out for hundreds of miles along mountain passes and steep gorges, almost lost an entire army. The Chinese then pushed us back to the 38th parallel, and all this happened pretty much in the first year of the war. All the rest of the conflict was spent at that line, with U.S. forces holding it and improving it by margins, while diplomats negotiated over the eventual ceasefire. So that's the war, and I laid out all my thoughts about how I maybe don't believe in the traditional narrative, In order to say that even though at this point I'm pretty much a know-nothing, I know that once I do my homework, my view of the Korean War is going to be pretty far from black and white. Ferenbach's, the guy we're talking about, T.R. Ferenbach, Ferenbach's is not. He saw the Cold War and Great Power Conflict generally, through the lens of the U.S. being right. Full stop. Right not by dint of a particular action in question, but because it was the U.S., and because it was holding the line against the Soviet Union. The way that Fehrenbach thought and wrote about the Cold War against world communism was that the U.S. was the current holder of the mantle of the West. West with a big W. The U.S. had inherited that position from the British most recently, and down on through the years from the Roman Empire and the Delian League of Greeks before them. It's a Eurocentric view, and one that scholars of Persia, or the African empires, or China, or pretty much anybody who'd studied history apart from Europe, would take issue with. But I understand it. Fehrenbach saw communists and world communism as the new barbarians, existing beyond the borders of the empire, which here is everything that folks in the mid-century understood to be the free world, quote-unquote. So in the same way that Roman legionaries patrolled the far frontiers of their empire to guard against invasions from the Goths, the Huns, the Franks, whoever, the U.S. had to hold the frontier, not of its own territory, but of the whole Western world and its client states. And I think Fehrenbach feared losing the territory and integrity of the free world to communist invasion the same way that the Roman Empire had broken up in the face of barbarous ones. So what's interesting about Fehrenbach's conception of the situation is that it eliminated one whole half of just war theory. Just war theory has a history that goes back to, well, almost our first written texts, but a lot of it grows out of Thomas Aquinas' writing in the 13th century, as he was working on regulating war between Christians. And a lot of what we might now think of rules of engagement, like not murdering civilians or POWs, grows out of those very old traditions. If you want to know more about it, and Just War Theory is seriously fascinating, Michael Walzer's Just and Unjust Wars is a really good read, and I'll link that on the page. Anyway, Just War Theory is divided between two distinct sets of guidelines. Use ad bellum, which governs when it is right to resort to arms, what are the contexts in which you can justly prosecute a war, and use in bello*, which you're probably more familiar with, which governs conduct inside of a war, so rules of engagement. I'm often thinking about use ad bellum in the first episodes of my series, because when we do things like suborn other countries' officers to encourage a coup or set up paramilitary forces to stage insurrections, we're engaging in acts of war without either having declared one or having obtained a set of just conditions to start one, according to use ad bellum. And what's interesting about Fehrenbach's view of communist barbarians is that it eliminates concerns about use ad bellum. The civilized world is effectively always at war with the uncivilized one, and the choice is not about whether to fight in a given place, but only about how. Use and Bella. Now, you should know by now that I think that Fehrenbach is dead wrong. Arbenz and Mossadegh, for example, and more specifically the Tudor and Guatemalan communist parties that supported those two men's governments were exactly the kind of enemies at the gates or barbarians that Fehrenbach was writing about. And from my podcast, you know that neither man was controlled by or interested in cooperating with Moscow, and that, in fact, both of them, given the opportunity, would have been the fast friends of the United States. But what I do like about Fehrenbach's conception of things is that, within itself, it's rigorous. There wasn't any consideration for him of what economic advantage controlling South Korea would give us. In fact, he seems to think that it would be a permanent drain on our economy, Likewise, he doesn't consider domino theory or how we'd lose all of Asia because of the optics of losing Korea. We had to make war against the invading North Koreans because at the end of the Second World War, everything south of the 38th parallel had ended up in civilization, and it was our duty to protect civilization come what may. The second thing that I like, a little bit less reservedly, about Fehrenbach, is the way that he talks about war once the fighting has begun. The situation in Korea at the start of the invasion was very much like that which would be the case later in the decade and into the 1960s in Vietnam. The southern regime of Syngman Ri in Korea was authoritarian and pretty thoroughly corrupt, and Fehrenbach, unlike contemporary writers, made no attempt in his book to whitewash that. He acknowledges that the regime was neither economically nor democratically viable, and that it wasn't likely to become either for decades. And conversely, he's got nothing but respect for the quality and the hardiness and the command of the North Korean troops that poured over the border. At the same time, just to be fair, Fehrenbach's not not chauvinist. He calls the Koreans the Irish of the Orient quite a few times, and I'm not actually up enough on mid-century racism to even unpack that statement. Likewise, whenever the North is attacking, its soldiers are yelping and roaring, and the Chinese, once they entered the war, same deal. Quote, The long, undulant columns chanted and grunted and sang after the manner of all Chinese at work or on the march until the hills were hideous with their noise. So that's not great. But I guess maybe it fits with his theme of civilization versus the barbarians, which is also not great, inasmuch as anybody who's ever met a Korean or a Chinese person would probably take issue with all of it. But what's most compelling to me about the argument that Fehrenbach weaves throughout the book is his concept of legions. Once the U.S. had de facto accepted the role of defender of the civilized world, he writes that what it needed and what it consistently failed or refused to produce were legions. Quote, in 1950, America, imperfectly understanding her position in this new world, had no legions. She had even no men in dirty shirt blue, such as had policed the Indian frontier. She had an army of sorts, of citizens, who were as conscious of their rights and privileges as of their duties and she had only a reserve of more citizens to fall back on. Citizens fly to defend the homeland, or to a crusade, but a frontier cannot be held by citizens, because citizens in a republic have better things to do." Unquote. Ferenbach contends that the American public, which had not accepted its role as world policemen, had a fundamentally different view of war than that which was required for the job. Americans, traditionally reluctant to make war beyond their own borders, at least before World War II, only wanted to turn up if the fight was a crusade, a jihad, he says over and over again, a fight for existential values and to the bitter end. That the American public, like MacArthur, once they'd begun a war against Korean and the Chinese communists, expected to prosecute it until they could impose an unconditional surrender on their opponents, until they'd taken Beijing, and if necessary after that, Moscow. Why start a war at all if you aren't willing to take it all the way? But Fehrenbach argues, and in this I agree, that when you're just holding the line, and especially when you're holding the line against opponents who are themselves nuclear-armed, you have to accept that war can and must be fought for limited political objectives, not for existential ones, and not to the finish. Quote, Americans, denying from moral grounds that war can ever be part of politics, inevitably tend to think in terms of holy war, against militarism, against fascism, against Bolshevism, In the post-war age, uneasy, disliking and fearing the unholiness of communism, they have prepared for jihad. If their leaders blow the trumpet, or if their homeland is attacked, their millions are agreed to be better dead than red. But the object of warfare is to dominate a portion of the earth with its peoples for causes either just or unjust. It is not to destroy the land and people unless you have gone wholly mad. Push-button war has its place. There is another kind of conflict, crusade, jihad, holy war, call it what you choose. It has been loosed before with attendant horror but indecisive results. In the past, there were never means enough to exterminate all the unholy, whether Christian, Moslem, Protestant, Papist, or Communist. If jihad is preached again, undoubtedly the modern age will do much better." And Fehrenbach argues that in its failure to accept its role as guardian of civilization, not only had the U.S. not accustomed itself to the idea of fighting limited wars for limited objectives, but that the American public had likewise created a military that was almost incapable of producing men who were ready to fight limited wars for limited objectives, that is, legions. Quote, there was and is no danger of military domination of the nation. The Constitution gave Congress the power of life or death over the military, and they have always accepted the fact. The danger has been the other way around. The liberal society, in its heart, wants not only domination of the military, but acquiescence of the military towards the liberal view of life. Domination and control society should have. The record of military rule, from the burnished and lazy Praetorians, to the juntas of South America, to the attempted fiasco of the Foreign Legion in Algeria, are pages of history singularly foul in odor. But acquiescence society may not have if it wants an army worth a damn. By the very nature of its mission, the military must maintain a hard and illiberal view of life and the world. Society's purpose is to live. The military's is to stand ready, if need be, to die. Soldiers are rarely fit to rule, but they must be fit to fight." I don't have enough and I don't want to do enough reading to evaluate exactly the story that Fehrenbach tells. But I trust him, and since I'm arguing with his morality and not exactly with his history, I think I can just give it to you. He holds that after World War II, the U.S. public tried to liberalize the military, that because so many civilians had entered the service during the war and had, afterwards, complained about the power of officers and NCOs and the abuses thereof, that the Congress had, at the public's behest, reduced those powers and had endeavored to make military service cushier and more comfortable. Quote, One important thing was forgotten by the citizenry. By 1946, all the intellectual and sensitive types had said goodbye to the army. They hoped for good. The new men coming in now were the kind of men who join armies the world over. Blank-faced, unmolded, and they needed shaping. They got it, but it wasn't the kind of shaping they needed. Now an NCO greeted new arrivals with a smile. Where once he would have told them they made him sick to his stomach, didn't look tough enough to make a go of his outfit, He now led them meekly to his company commander, and this clean-cut young man, who once would have sat remote at the right hand of God in his orderly room, issuing orders that crackled like thunder, now smiled too. Welcome aboard, gentlemen. I am your company commander. I'm here to help you. I'll try to make your stay both pleasant and profitable. This was all very democratic and pleasant, but it is the nature of young men to get away with anything they can, and soon these young men found that they could get away with plenty. A soldier could tell a sergeant to blow it in the old army he might have been bashed and found immediately what the rules were going to be in the canadian army which oddly enough no american liberalists have found fascistic or bestial he would have been marched in front of his company commander had his pay reduced perhaps even been confined for 30 days with no damaging mark on his record he would have learned instantly that orders are to be obeyed but in the new american army the sergeant reported such a case to his ceo But the CO couldn't do anything drastic or educational to the man. For any real action, he had to pass the case up higher. And nobody wanted to court martial the man to put a permanent damaging mark on his record. The most likely outcome for the man was to be chided for being rude and requested to do better in the future. Some privates, behind their smirks, liked it fine. And the proof here of Fehrenbach's conception is more or less in the pudding. It's well established that the U.S. military on entering Korea was at the ground level totally unprepared for the conflict. Training and drilling had died off, and men were unable to run, shoot, carry, hike, or in general fight as well as the North Koreans, or even as well as the recruits at the beginning of the last war. Moreover, Fehrenbach argues, soldiers didn't know that they'd become legionaries, rather than members of a patriotic militia, because the government sold the war as an existential fight against communism. After the end of the Chinese counterattack that drove the UN forces back to the 38th parallel, Korea became a stalemate, not because the U.S. didn't have the ability to win it, but rather because the administration thought that taking the whole peninsula from the Chinese might start a general conflict. So for years, troops sat on a line and fought over hills when they knew that they were capable of taking the fight to the Yalu in the north. But while Korea became a war fought for very limited and very bloody objectives, and in support of the guys at the bargaining table, the military continued to sell it to the troops as a grand moral cause. And the cognitive dissonance between the rhetoric and the war as it was being fought meant that the boys on the line couldn't understand what, exactly, they were fighting for, and that had an understandable effect on morale. And Fernbach wasn't concerned with morale as an abstract concept, but because men who are confused as to why they're fighting tend to die more rapidly and in greater numbers than men who are not. And he's got pretty strong feelings there. Quote, A nation that does not prepare for all forms of war should then renounce the use of war in national policy. A people that does not prepare to fight should then be morally prepared to surrender. To fail to prepare soldiers and citizens for limited, bloody ground action and then to engage in it is folly verging on the criminal. Unquote. One of the other things that grows out of Fehrenbach that I really like are his notions of use in bellow, conduct during war, and the consideration that comes from them, not just for our own troops, but for the other side. When he talks about the confusion of the public and the troops as to why our bombers and aircraft and missiles weren't getting the job done against the supposedly more backwards North Koreans and Chinese, he had this to say, Nothing had happened to push-button warfare. Its emergence was at hand. Horrible weapons that could destroy every city on earth were at hand, at too many hands. But push-button warfare meant Armageddon, and Armageddon, hopefully, will never be an end of national policy. Americans in 1950 rediscovered something that since Hiroshima they had forgotten. You may fly over a land forever. You may bomb it, atomize it, pulverize it, and wipe it clean of life. But if you desire to defend it, protect it, and keep it for civilization, you must do this on the ground the way the Roman legions did, by putting your young men into the mud," unquote. Because Fehrenbach had such a traditionalist view of warfare, one that harkened back to the Greeks and the Romans slugging it out shield to shield, spear to spear, he ended up with a total disdain for the idea that we could fight any war with any kind of technology much more advanced than a man with a gun in his hands. There is a concept in just war theory called the Doctrine of Double Effect, And what the DODE says is that as long as you're attacking legitimate targets of war, soldiers, weapons manufacturing, etc., you're allowed to kill civilians in the process. You're even allowed to know that you'll probably end up killing civilians, as long as that that is not your intent. Michael Walzer, the guy that wrote the book I mentioned, Just and Unjust Wars, says that until we can arrange to fight only in the desert or in the middle of the ocean, collateral damage will happen and the provisions of the doctrine of double effect are what we have to try to mitigate that damage. The most important of those provisions is that a commander, when he's considering an attack that may kill civilians, whether that's firing rifles near a populated area or laying siege to an entire city, he has to consider spending the lives of his own soldiers before those of the civilians at risk. He has to weigh his own troops' lives as less important because they, and not the civilians, have chosen war and the risk of death as their profession. Now exactly how many men the commander has to spend for every civilian life isn't a matter of established tradition or spelled out in the uniform code, but this is just war theory as it comes down to us. And it has struck me that almost every advance in military technology has made it easier for commanders and strategic planners to ignore this most important part of the doctrine of double effect. Nuclear war is the best example. The government and the military repair to hardened bunkers and push buttons while the civilian populations of at least two countries vanish. But drone warfare is, as far as I can see, nearly as bad in its transgression of the doctrine. A man who's never at risk in Ohio launches a Hellfire missile from a Predator drone that, as often as not, kills civilians. And I'd rather see hundreds of failed raids, like the one that went down in February, than I would hundreds of drone strikes, even successful ones. And that's not because I want to see American servicemen die. I don't want anybody getting killed on our side or theirs. But if there's a chance we're going to hit civilians, putting our own guys in danger so that they can make the decisions about who and who not to kill, and weighing their military lives against other peaceful ones is the moral thing to do. But even more than being moral, it's the more effective thing to do. We've spent more than a decade blowing people away with predator drones in the Middle East, and all we've done is breed more extremism and terrorism, while shielding that program, because none of our guys die, from people here at home. And where the squares with Fehrenbach, and the Korean, and then later the Vietnam War, is that we were constantly putting into use weapons and tactics, like carpet bombing from high altitude, and interdiction artillery, where we fired giant howitzers blind at map coordinates in the hopes of hitting communists, that were as or more likely to hit civilians than the enemy. And not only did those civilian deaths tend to turn the population, pretty understandably, against us, they were also totally ineffective in fighting those wars, because, as Fehrenbach says over and over again, you've just got to put guys in the mud. So I like a lot of what Fehrenbach's about. And I think that in the course of this 30 minutes or so that we've been going, I think I gave him a pretty fair hearing. I understand and can even empathize with his conception of this question of the why. Why did we fight the wars we did? Because we had to. Because we were holding the line and there was no other way. And God knows I'd like to sink into that way of thinking. It's easy and it's comforting. Like any white Amero-European scholar of history, I get all the romantic nostalgia for the days of the legions, and of the men in red coats patrolling the far frontiers and watching the Valley of the Khyber 10,000 miles from home. I read Kipling, and I get it, man. But I cannot agree with any of it. I think that George Washington's ideas about staying away from British imperialism are infinitely nobler than ones where we assume that we have the right to write off half of humanity, because of their government's politics, no matter how odious they are. In the end, for Fehrenbach, the wars that the British fought in India, and the wars that we fought against the American Indians on the plains, and the Korean War were all morally equivalent. And because he's thinking about use in bella within his framework, he's right. But I disagree with the morality of much of what we've done in the last century, and this one, in terms of use ad bellum, the justness of entering our wars and coups themselves. Fehrenbach writes this about the consequences to the Korean people of the war we were fighting, ostensibly on their behalf. Quote, It was soon apparent who the real losers of this war were going to be. Hundreds of thousands of Koreans had been torn from the land as each army marched through, fighting, killing, burning. Nobody really wanted to hurt the civilians, but they were in the way. Nobody could help it if they got hurt, unquote. He's half right in that war produces casualties, military and civilian. But wars waged by democracies are rhetorically and should be in fact fought on the behalf of peoples and not abstract principles. No healthy democracy, even in a desperate war, should be thinking about destroying the village to save it. And this is where I have my strongest and deepest conflict with Fehrenbach and everybody like him. They want to imagine the United States emerging from World War II as a new Rome, a new empire of civilization. They want to imagine our armies as legions, or in Fehrenbach's case, to turn our militiamen into legionaries. And you know what? The U.S. could have been an even greater Roman Empire. The U.S. is the only country since Rome that could have carried out greater and more comprehensive feats of engineering and logistics and cultural assimilation. But it would have ceased to be itself in the process. We could have won the war in Vietnam if we had decided to be Romans. We tried, unwisely, through the whole course of that war, to act through the South Vietnamese government. If we had wanted to win, if we had wanted to be Romans, we would have replaced that government with a government of Americans. We would have shipped thousands of our own families to Vietnam. Rather than trying to indoctrinate its villagers, we would have filled its villages with our own citizens. We would have made it a colony. Because the end result of the mindset of legions on the frontier is colonization, and it has been since the time of the Romans. Quote, The United States will be forced to fight wars of policy during the balance of the century. This is inevitable since the world is seething with disaffection and revolt, which, however justified and merited, plays into communist hands and swings the world balance ever their way. Military force alone cannot possibly solve the problem, but without the application of some military force, certain areas, such as Southeast Asia, will inevitably be lost. However repugnant the idea is to liberal societies, The man who will willingly defend the free world in the fringe areas is not the responsible citizen-soldier. The man who will go where his colors go, without asking, who will fight a phantom foe in jungle and mountain rage, without counting, and who will suffer and die in the midst of incredible hardship, without complaint, is still what he has always been, from imperial Rome to sceptered Britain to democratic America. He is the stuff of which legions are made. His pride is in his colors and his regiment, His training hard and thorough and coldly realistic, to fit him for what he must face. And his obedience is to his orders. As a legionary, he held the gates of civilization for the classical world. As a blue-coated horseman, he swept the Indians from the plains. He has been called United States Marine. He does the jobs, the utterly necessary jobs, that no militia is willing to do. His task is moral or immoral according to the orders that send him forth. It is inevitable, since men compete." Fehrenbach won half his battle. We have legions now. We have men whose pride is in their colors and in their units, who will willingly head off to Iraq or Afghanistan or, now, Syria, on orders that they refrain, at least when under arms, from questioning. But the issue with having legions is that every problem around the world begins to look as if it's a problem that legions can solve. And unless you're willing to go the whole way, to swallow the entire pill, to be the Romans, to be the British, to colonize, legions cannot solve your problems in the way that they could not and did not solve Iraq and Afghanistan. Fehrenbach thinks that we assumed the role of the protector of civilization, and I think he's correct in that we eventually did accept it. But whereas he sees that as having been the right thing to do, I think that in doing so, we abandoned much of what had been worthwhile about the American experiment in Republican democracy, and that we abandoned, in 1946, an opportunity to be a wholly new kind of world leader rather than half-following, as we did, in the footsteps of the Romans and the British before us. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today plundering for our own ease and convenience, the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust.